Welcome to the Compelling Words Podcast. The Word of God is meant to move us. It's meant to call us to action. Listen in as Kevin Purdy teaches and presents a genuine and compelling message from the Word of God. This morning I'd like to begin with a story. It's a story that comes from deep within the jungle. The story tells of an arrogant, prideful lion who wanted to remind all the other jungle animals about who the king of the jungle actually was. So he goes, he approaches the gazelle, and he roars out, he says, Who is the king of the jungle? Trembling, the gazelle answered, Why, why you are, mighty lion. He next went to the giraffe, and he roars out, Who is the king of the jungle? Fearful, the giraffe answered, Why you are, mighty lion. Next, he went out to the monkey, and he roared, Who is the king of the jungle? Terrified, the monkey answered, Why, you are, mighty lion. Finally, he went to the elephant, and he roared out, Who is the king of the jungle? And the elephant reached out with its trunk and grabbed the lion and slammed it into the ground several times and then flung it across to where it landed upon a giant boulder. As the lion laid there in shock and in pain, he looked up at the elephant, and he said, Just because you don't know the answer, you don't have to take it so personally. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to let go of a bad attitude, especially if we're clinging and holding on to some pride. You've heard before, we've all heard this, that your attitude speaks much louder than your words. Our attitude can encourage and it can uplift, and our attitude can tear down and destroy. Our attitude can push people away from the Lord, or our attitude can draw them even closer. When the Apostle Paul wrote the Philippian letter, he had something to say about our attitude. And keep in mind that he writes this letter while he's in prison. He's under guard 24-7, and he's writing, and he's expressing joy, and he teaches, he talks about an attitude. This is what it says in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Paul says in this letter to this church in Philippi, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have anything in common with sharing in the spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion. And he states that, he's worded that like a question that has a condition to it. Like, if you have those things, then you should. But it's not really meant that way. He isn't questioning them as much as he's reminding them. There is encouragement from being united with Christ. There is comfort from his love. There is fellowship with the Spirit. And there is tenderness and compassionate and compassion. So he says, if those things are there, which they most definitely are there, then that should be reflected in our attitudes. 
If we have those qualities and characteristics because we are with Christ, then that should be reflected in our attitudes. And the attitude that Paul encouraged was an attitude of humility. Paul defined humility like this. He said this. He said, humility is putting others above us. It's not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That doesn't come easy, does it? That, that doesn't come easy. It's not easy to put someone else above ourselves, before ourselves. Most of us tend to be a little me first when it comes to things. A school not too far from here was hosting a parent-teacher conference, and appointments were scheduled. It was just one of those things where it was come and wait your turn. There wasn't any defined times. Come, come to the classroom, wait your turn. Apparently, one of the moms waited for a while with one of the teachers for her student, for her kid, but she got tired of waiting. So she moved on to another one of her child's teachers. But when she came back to that classroom, the line was even longer. Well, she thought that she should get to go back to the front of the line because she had already been there waiting some. Well, you know, the new people in line, they didn't like that very much. And so an argument breaks out. An argument so intense, so bad, that the principal of the school had to come down and break up this argument between these parents. Put others above ourselves. Look not to your own interests, but the interest of others. Come on. I mean, if we do that, aren't we just asking to be mistreated? It certainly won't be fair. Do you remember there's an old commercial from Ally Bank? And it shows a guy waiting in line at a grocery checkout. And someone else comes, another man comes up and asks if he could cut in front of the man. And here's what happens. This man is about to be the millionth customer. I go ahead of you. Instead, we had someone go ahead of him and win fifty thousand dollars. Congratulations! You are our one millionth customer. Nobody likes to miss out. That's why Ally treats all their customers the same, whether you're the first or the millionth. If your bank doesn't think you're special anymore, you need an Ally. Ally Bank. Your money needs an Ally. Don't you just love the expression on his face? I mean, you could just read what he's thinking. He's like going, are you serious? You see, that's what we're afraid of, though. That's what we're afraid of. As soon as we put someone else ahead of our interests, we might miss out. We might not get what we think we should get. We might lose out. What do they say? It doesn't pay to be... Kind. Kindness comes from a humble place. And to be humble means that we don't have to be the one who wins. You know, it's really hard to keep our blessings in mind when our mind is stuck on the question, why not me? That's where we struggle. We want what we think we deserve. In political terms, we call that an entitlement. And that's a hot-button issue. The debate is all about what rights do people have and what entitlements do those rights grant them. Well, politics aside, entitlement and a humble attitude are in conflict with each other. 
Because entitlement is all about what I get. What are my rights? And humility is all about what can I give up. It's about letting go. Paul briefly describes humility, but then he takes it further and he gives us the perfect example of humility. If we continue to read in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, it says this. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul tells us, Paul writes to this church in Philippi and he speaks of humility and then he starts speaking of Jesus and he tells us that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to grasp. Now we've got to stop and think about that because here's the thing, the Bible teaches us that Jesus and God are one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus didn't need to grasp equality with God because he already had it. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus did not grasp it. He temporarily submitted those rights and he lowered himself. He didn't have to. Jesus could have come and in that very moment demanded that every knee bow. He could have come in a blaze of glory and said, every knee bow. That day's still to come. He could have come and he could have immediately passed judgment. That day is still to come as well. Jesus had every right to come in all full authority and fullness of power. He was entitled to it. But the Bible says that when he came... He made himself nothing. He came as a servant. He came in human likeness. And he came in a very, very, very humble way. Just think about what we're getting ready to celebrate. The birth of our Savior and how humble was that? The circumstances of that. But not only did Jesus come in a humble way, he lived a humble life. Jesus showed humility in serving. The dinner was finished and he stood up and he walked to the corner of the room and he picked up a towel and he wrapped it around his waist and then he picked up a basin and he filled it with water. He carried it to them and he knelt at their feet and he began to wash their feet. John 13 verse 12 through 17 says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to this place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Foot washing, the washing of feet, was a customary practice back then. They walked with sandals on dirty, grimy streets. And so when they came into a home for a time of of eating, they would wash feet. It was a customary practice back then. But it was a servant's chore. But here in the upper room, there was no servant there. They were meeting in secret. So there was no servant there because they didn't want the risk of Jesus being there, being let out. So there's no servant there, but they're into the meal already, and no one has washed feet. You kind of already see this, don't you? None of the disciples want to do it. Nobody wanted to do this chore. That's the servant's chore. Servant's not here. We just, ah, let's just eat with dirty feet, I guess. But Jesus, what's he do? He volunteers. He gets up, goes get the water basin, and he lowered himself. He humbled himself. And he became the servant. And do you notice what he said? He said, I have set an example. I have set an example. We don't wash feet in today's culture. I'm thankful for that. I mean, I'm glad we get to wear socks, shoes, and we don't have to worry about going into a place and having somebody wash your feet. Uh, That kind of creeps me out. So... We don't do that in today's culture. But there are still plenty of things that we do that we can do to serve one another. And some of those things are not very dignified. Some of them may be a little unpleasant. Some of them may be a little uncomfortable. Don't ever think that you're above it. Don't ever think that you're too good for it. In downtown Memphis, Tennessee, there's a place called the Manor House. The Manor House is a volunteer-run mission with the purpose of providing dignity to the homeless population. They give out small toiletries and hot sh- showers and uh, clothing, hospitality. I read an article about a man that was at one of these shelters. He worked there. His name was Kirk. He volunteered there. Kirk gave haircuts to the men. He would sit on the porch of the house with clippers, scissors, and a brush And he would cut the hair of the homeless men. A well-dressed, well-groomed man cutting the matted, dirty hair of the homeless. But that's not all. Kirk Wallum is an accomplished musician. He plays the jazz saxophone. He toured as Whitney Houston's opening act for several years. He's been nominated for 12 Grammy Awards. He won the Grammy in 2011 for the best gospel song. He could be a part of a very sophisticated, socially elite, but he spends his time cutting the hair of the homeless. So what what does humility look like? What does humble look like? It looks like a servant on his hands and knees washing feet. It looks like a jazz musician cutting the hair of the homeless. It... It looks like anyone setting pride aside and doing something for someone else, no matter how uncomfortable it makes them. But Paul had even more to say about the humility 
of Jesus. Because he says this, he says, you know, Jesus came in a humble way and Jesus showed humility with his service, but Jesus showed humility also in obedience. Jesus showed humility in obedience. Philippians 2 verse 8 says that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do we ever do that? Do we ever stop and think about how Jesus dying on the cross was a very humiliating thing? It was a humble way to experience death. Imagine the humility of that moment. It was a public execution for everyone to see. Jesus was stripped, beaten, mocked, ridiculed, hung upon a cross, exposed for all to see. Jesus had to surrender his rights. He had to restrain his strength and put aside his desires. I don't think it was easy. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in the garden the night of his arrest? He said, Father, if this cup can be passed from me. You see, the cross was not going to be easy. On the cross, he was going to go through this intense, brutal, and agonizing, painful experience. And it was more brutal and more agonizing and more painful in more ways than we could even begin to imagine. Because not only would Jesus feel the physical pain, he would also feel the rejection and the weight of our sin upon him. Do you remember what Jesus cried out upon that cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One moment, one, the one and the only moment where Jesus was forsaken, was rejected, was separated from his Father because of our sin. God is too holy, too just, and too pure to have anything to do with sin. And in that moment, when all of our sin was upon Jesus, God, for the one and only time, turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. He took our sin so we don't have to take the punishment for our sin. Jesus put aside that fear, and he put us first. He humbled himself, and he became obedient. And in the garden, we go back to that, and how did he finish that prayer? He said, Father, if you could take this cup from me. And then he says, but not my will, but yours. Here's what I keep asking myself. How far does my obedience go? How, how far does my obedience go? Where do I say, not my will, but yours? Where, where do I say, you know, God, I don't want to do this. It scares me. But not my will, but yours. 
God, I don't, I don't want to do this because it's going to hurt. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward. But not my will, but yours. God, I don't, want to, I don't want to give up who I am. I don't want to change who I am. But not my will, but yours. God, I don't want to put that person above me. I don't know what they're going to do with things. I mean, I don't know. Not my will, but yours. Will I obey when I really don't want to? Will I obey when it's hard, when I'm afraid? Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul writes this letter to this church in Philippi, and he says, you guys have been obeying. You've been doing well with this. You have been obeying. Even when I'm gone and separated from you, you've been obedient, and that's a good thing. But he says to them, he says, to work out their salvation. The Bible says to work out your salvation. But don't misunderstand. It doesn't say to work for your salvation. It says to work it out. We don't work for our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation. It says to work out. In fact, it says to continue to work out. It says to continue to work it out right after he commends them for their obedience. We work out our salvation when we obey God. That's how we work out our salvation. We work it out in our obedience. It doesn't earn us salvation, but it's the product of our salvation. Our good works, the things that we do, do not work us for salvation, but because of salvation, we work it out. Our salvation should initiate obedience. And our obedience is a reflection of our humility. It's not about us. It's all about him. The verse says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that's not, that doesn't have anything to do with being afraid of God. It's a statement of a serious attitude. We should work out our faith with a serious, devoted, dedicated mindset. Don't be indifferent or careless about how we live for Christ. Be concerned about how we're living for Christ. But we also need to recognize this. It is God who works through us. It is God who works in you. A famous Polish composer and a pianist named Ignacy John, Ignacy Jan Paderewski, or something similar to that. <laughs> he was scheduled to perform at a great American concert hall for a high society extravaganza. In the audience was a mother who had her young son with her, and he was getting very fidgety. And somehow, some way, he, he, he got away and he made it up onto the stage. And he made it up to the, the what's they call it, a Steinway piano, a big, nice piano up on stage. And, and he sat down and he started to play out chopsticks on the piano. And the crowd, of course, at first was very loud with just laughter and stuff. But then it turned into anger and frustration. Well, this famous composer heard the noise and saw what was going on. He grabbed his coat and he rushed out and he sat down on the bench behind the boy at the piano and 
reaching around from behind him, this master composer began to improvise a counter melody to chopsticks. And as the two of them played together, he kept whispering in the boy's ear, Keep going. Don't quit. Don't stop. It sounds great. I believe that's a very good picture of our salvation being worked out. It's allowing God to wrap his arms around us and make some beautiful music out of the things that we're doing. It's God working through us. So, so what does humble look like? Well, humble is an attitude without pride. It's kind of funny because it's a humble thing to admit your pride, but it's a prideful thing to admit you're humble. D.L. Moody said this, he said, I believe firmly that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our hearts. What does humble look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like a servant. It looks like someone choosing to obey. And Paul gives a very cool picture of what happens when we live like that. As he's writing to this church, he gives this example, this picture of what it looks like to, to be, have that kind of attitude. Listen to what he says in Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. When our attitudes reflect Jesus, we will shine. We will be that light upon a hill that draws people to the Lord. Please stand with me as I pray. Let's pray. God, please work in our hearts and our minds, and shape our attitudes. May we put aside any pride or selfishness, and may we understand that humility should be reflected in our hearts and minds, in our attitudes. May we be humble, recognizing that it is only your grace that saves us. Therefore, it's a gift that we've received, nothing we've earned. May we be a servant to those around us. May we put the interests of others before ourselves. May we live the example that Jesus set before us. I pray this through Christ. Amen.